Welcome to We're Not Finished, a podcast presented by the studios of Key West. I'm Gwen Filosa. I'm a reporter at the Miami Herald. The studios is a leading art institution in South Florida. It's located downtown at 533 Eaton Street. For a list of events and more programming like this, go to tskw.org. Joining me is the winner of the 2022 Lambda Literary Award for LGBTQ Drama for his work, Mrs. Harrison. He's a novelist, a columnist, journalist, R. Eric Thomas. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really delighted to be here. And you are um, uh, in Philly, but you uh, are from Baltimore. I am. Yeah, I, um, I'm dialing from Philly now, but I've, I've bounced back and forth between Baltimore and Philly for basically my whole life. I grew up in Baltimore, then went to school in New York, and then moved back to Baltimore, and then moved to Philly because of the, the vibrant art scene, and then moved back to Baltimore for my husband's job, and, and now we just got back to Philly. Um, so I think I should probably see another part of the country at some point. I've, I've heard it's nice. You're super busy. <laughs> I am. I am super busy. Um, every time I sort of hear people sort of introduce me, I'm like, who's doing all this stuff? Uh, I've been to Baltimore a few times. I've always been fascinated by it. I lived in New Orleans for a while, and I just thought the two cities have a, a lot in common, especially community and neighborhood and, and challenges as well. Um, what What was it like growing up? What was your home like? What was your neighborhood like? I, I read that um, the Wire, the HBO show, which I've seen about 18 times, uh, mm-hmm. they they filmed in your neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. It was a really, I call, I, I talk about Baltimore as a city of bubbles um, because, you know, my parents sacrificed a lot to give us a really full and rich experience um, exposing us to the, um, you know, to art and science and sports and things that we were interested in. Um um, but the how the place where the, the ha- their house is, um, it was the neighborhood um, was sort of beset by realtors who um, uh, don't live in the city and 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 weren't responsible landlords, and so there was a lot of um, uh, decay around us a lot, and in the and and that made for a great backdrop for the series The Wire, and so sometimes when I was coming out of the house um, as a uh, I, I moved back after college and. Um, I, uh, I, I was substitute teaching school and I would come out of the house in the morning and I would see people, uh, sitting on our front steps waiting on an open air drug market. And then I would always have to ask them, like, are you like real people? Or are you actors? You know, are you pretending to be waiting for a drug market? Or are you really waiting? Like, and it was very confusing. Um, and you know, it was a, a real mixed bag, but I, I feel really, I, I feel privileged to have had such a sort of complex um, growing up experience because I think it also sort of makes my understanding of the world um, deeper and more complex. And, and I'm really grateful to my parents for giving me um, a perspective that, that says that I'm not just this. Um, I, I can be so many more things. Mm-hmm. And, and what was inside the house like? Uh, what, what were you reading or watching or how, how um, what were you exposed to growing up as far as news, art, TV? Yeah, we we would we were a big library family. My mother um, is a uh, or she's retired now, but uh, she was a, a public school teacher and um, and later a principal for um, over three decades. Um, and you know, both my parents um, are college educated, and so we were really big on books. Um, we would go to the library. My mother likes to tell the story that like 
when I would go as a kid, even before I could read, I would go and um, demand that we borrow the maximum number of books, which I think at our library was like 30, um, mm-hmm. and then go home and read all the books. Um, and so I was really just sort of exposed to reading and to books as this these portals into other worlds. Um, you know, I still feel that way. And, you know, it's, it's why I'm a writer. Um, and a lot of the things that I write are uh, um, influenced by pop culture. You know, I've written a number of um, plays about our relationship to TV. Um, and um, my young adult novel is sort of a contemporary riff on Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, so people are often surprised to find that I wasn't allowed to watch TV growing up. Um, we we were allowed to watch um, the local PBS affiliate. And so, you know, Mr. Rogers is still very big in my life. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, Sesame Street, I'm a big Muppet person. Um, and but I also got exposed through PBS to great performances. And uh, I, I remember seeing the filmed version of uh, Into the Woods, um, the Broadway production. Nice. And I wore that out. Um, so, you know, even if you're only allowed to watch one channel, you can certainly get a full um, perspective on um, on the artistic world, which can fuel you for, you know, going on 40 years now. So <laughs> it, it works. That's uh, w- were you always writing or read uh, reading? I mean, when 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 did you have? A, when was the first moment you thought, "Yeah, I'm gonna write. I'm gonna do this." Well, I think you know, I always was like writing little things, writing little stories. My mother has like my first story from when I was like three years old that I like dictated, um, okay. and it was just always a, a really fun outlet for me. But I don't think I really understood that it was a thing that I could do. Um, probably until my senior year of high school, um, I was, uh, uh, I took a a creative writing class, a short story class, and we read short stories, and then we wrote our own, and I got feedback. It was the first time I was in a workshop, and I'd done different exercises, write this, write that, for different, you know, school English um, projects, but it was the first time that I'd been in a workshop environment where I was getting feedback from my peers and able to write what I wanted to write, and um, all I need is just a little bit of encouragement and I will run with it. And so people were like, these are not bad. And I was like, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to this because um, that's all I needed, you know? And, and so then, you know, I went over, went to college and, and, and you know, I think I went to college thinking I was going to be a novelist. Um, I was like very influenced by Toni Morrison as, you know, everybody is. And I was like, I'm going to be Toni Morrison. And uh, that position was filled. So I kind of like wandered around a little bit, but I found um, that I didn't have to, to limit myself to one discipline. Um, and so I started writing plays and I um, kept writing short stories and just kept finding other ways of, of exploring narrative and exploring voice. And can we, uh, can you talk about storytelling because all of your writing seems to um and and your uh you do the moth in philadelphia why does everyone love the moth it's amazing <laughs> i don't know anyone who doesn't love it it's i mean it's what's well, kind of a miracle right like you're like okay well these people there's an evening where like i say at the beginning of every show i'm like we don't know what's going to happen we put a theme in a bucket um and uh, or we put a theme out and people put their names in the bucket 
And then they're just going to come up here and they're going to talk for five minutes about what happened in their life. And it's always compelling. And I think it's because when you, one, narrative is just so fascinating. And so when you start a story and you give us, you know, give us a little sense of context and give us a sense of what you, the character, want, then we immediately become invested in finding out if you got what you wanted. Um, And that's just sort of like the magic of story arithmetic. But there's also the magic of, of empathy. And when you tell a story and you share a piece of yourself, it, it creates this bridge between yourself and everybody who's listening. And, and it, it helps us to imagine what was going on in your life, but also helps us to see commonality um, and see ourselves in the story. And I think that is really, really powerful. And that's something that I've always carried with me. You know, I, when I teach storytelling, I always tell people, the more specific, the better. Um, and the more specific, the more wide ranging it's going to feel for the for the audience, um, which is counterintuitive. You would think you would say like, oh, I'm a person who had, uh, uh, I, I wanted to fall in love. Isn't that, isn't that the way everybody feels? But instead, if you're like, I had the biggest crush on this person that I met at this Starbucks at this date and time, then all of a sudden our imaginations start running and we start filling in details and we start seeing ourselves as, uh, as, as kin, as human kin, um, which is, I think, hugely, hugely influential. And I, I love, uh, you talked about storytelling arithmetic. I, I hadn't heard that before. I love that. Are there just standard rules of, of telling a story? Because everything's a story, the way we mm-hmm. communicate, the way, you know, I'm a reporter, but I mean, the way people talk to me, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's usually their version through their perception of what happened. But yeah. do we need a, do we always need a beginning, middle, end? if the, there's a gun in the first act, you know, <laughs> are there just rules and, and then you can break them if you know them? Tell, tell me a little bit about um, the basics, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, there's many ways of telling a story, but I think that the things that are sort of non-negotiable are stakes, you know, mm. um, what do you want or what does, the central figure wants and and why and what's keeping them from it and how powerful is that thing um and uh you know whenever i sort of and that and that's kind of the thing i think storytelling and and, and, uh, and therapy kind of sit side by side because when you go back through your life and you have to ask yourself these questions what did i want what was keeping me from it sometimes the answer is oh i was keeping it me from the thing that I wanted um and and that's true a lot of the time and the way that you turn that into a story as opposed to sort of just like a a reflection is by you know figuring out what the external things um that you were doing to be your own antagonist um and and then figure out how you overcame that um and then turn that into a sort of something that has what we call rising action, you know, like one thing happens, which, which complicates the story and sends it to a new place. And then another thing happens. So I think the other thing beyond stakes, it's consequence. Um, a lot of times we'll just tell, you know, anecdotes. what did you do last night? Oh, I watched TV. Then we had dinner. Um, they went to bed. Um, well, there's no stakes there really. Um, and there's no consequence there. Um, but there could be, um, because, 
sometimes the events in our lives are unrelated and random. Um, but sometimes we're able to go back and draw linkages between the events um, and, and create a domino effect. And I think that's really, that has changed my life in being able to, to sort of say, this is the thing that happened to me. And I can go back and trace all of the different steps that got me here because it doesn't feel like life is random and it doesn't feel like I'm just sort of tumbling from one thing to another. Um, I get to make choices about um, uh, uh, about the different stages of my life um, and um, and, and, and in so doing, shape uh, a story and knowing that that's not the only story that I can tell about different events. It's, it's just amazing. And, and um, now uh, talk about uh, Kings of Beemore. How did this come, what inspired this? And it, 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 it's, to me, seems like a very personal, I mean, everything's personal, but I mean, it seems like something you uh, were ready to write at this time. Yeah, I've been thinking about writing um, a young adult novel for a while. I, and I think because young adult novels were where I sort of first entered um, as a really voracious reader, you know, as a, they were sort of the things that I picked up when I was able to sort of choose um, independently to go to the library by myself and, and take a look. At, and and um, I remember sometimes not always finding myself in these books and which is okay you know like again stories are empathy engines and so I can read A Tree Grows in Brooklyn or A Bridge to Terabithia and and I can imagine myself in in the circumstances and I think it is good to read something like you know Tree Grows in Brooklyn um and and uh understand a sort of a greater sense of 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 humanity um but that said I I just had this hunger to make sure that there was also a space for um, these two characters uh, in the sort of literary landscape. These two, they're, they're both Black boys. They live in Baltimore. Um, one is sort of middle class. One is a little bit um, working class uh, family. Um, they're both queer kids. Um, they're both out. Um, they both have sort of come from religious families who are not, um, who are open and affirming. Um, and uh, which is very important for me to sort of put in there. there there's not a conflict between their religion and their and their sexual orientation. Um, and they're both, they are, they are, they, they are best friends and they are discovering over the course of the book what it means to be in platonic love, um, mm. to realize that like, you know, they don't end up together. This isn't a sort of friends to lovers story. This is a friends to friends story. Um, and you can tell that about, anybody and that's something that's sort of common we can all we all want to find our people um but to be able to put it in the the minds and the bodies of these two kids who sometimes we think are really kind of hamstrung by their quote-unquote otherness and to say like no they're not they're free you know um they may be quote-unquote other in some circumstances um but these boys can have um an adventure um that is just at the core of deeply human um, and only shaded by um, the different places where they um, might be minorities in, in, in some places in America. I just love, I love uh, reading about Kings of Beemore. It's a great title, by the way. I'm a big title person. Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> cover, yeah, I'm just like, wow, that's the best title. And the, the beautiful cover of the, the two young men and obviously friends and you know I grew up gay in Indiana I'm a little I'm a lot older than you and just 
I didn't know what you could be gay. I just knew I didn't mm-hmm. know guys. And I felt, I just decided with no input that I was just a horrible freak and would mm. never know love and rode mm-hmm. with that for 10 years. And, and, and if it wasn't for books, like the outsiders, I think I read that too many times. It was those things just saved me, but to see young adult um, novels that are like about um, queer kids and it's not an issue. They, that's just the character. It's, yeah. They're not always coming out stories, which I, I like, but um, I don't know, just what's it feel like to just be part of, you know, th- these kind of works, you know, have saved lives. I'm, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. I, um, no, I, I would agree, you know, and, and that's the thing, like, there are some writers who are doing, there's, you know, I think about George, George M. Johnson, um, who, uh, uh, whose uh, book, All Boys Aren't Blue, is wildly popular and, 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 you know, a really beautiful sort of um, young adult memoir um, uh, that deals with a lot of sort of the trauma um, and the pain that he experienced growing up black and gay. And those books are very important. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, uh, but I also feel like there is a space to, for a book that is, um, that lets uh, these characters be, um, human um in all of its complexity um and and sort of not defined by anything but their own sort of definitions and i do hope that it i i do hope that it, it gives i just hope that it opens up a, a a door in a reader's mind um um uh and 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 gives them like a sense that that there is I don't know. I don't, I think normalcy is overrated. I'm not, my project isn't normalcy. Um, but I, I have found as I've gotten older that, um, um, sometimes we are really limited in the stories that we think we're allowed to be a part of. Um, and that can be as, that that can hold us, uh, in as much as closets can hold us in. And, um, I think that one of the things that I and a lot of other young adult writers are trying to do is to say that you can be and do anything um and i want to show you that that's true and i i hope that that makes a difference um in people's lives and um just wanted to i i just love the fact that you write you know essays you know journalism plays television uh young adult novels uh, other columns i mean i i just love that i I don't know a lot of writers that maybe maybe that is it just because we got to pay the bills or (laughs) or is it is it important for you to to just you know uh use different medium media i think it's a little of i think it's mostly about just i i i have a love for so many different mediums or media and um and yeah, I mean, some stories are, 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 are novels, you know? Um, and it's funny, you know, I, I'm trying to, I'm working on turning Kings of Be more into a film um, at this point. And so I was like, yeah, some stories are novels and then they become films and then they come, become musicals. And, you know, I, I get that, but I don't know. I just have, uh, I have a love for so many different forms um, that I, I, I just love playing in different playgrounds. Um, and I love, I, I like saying yes, um, you know, and so when I get, I feel really fortunate to be able to write, um, and I know that it's a precarious thing, and I know that when the fact that I'm writing stories that center um, people of color and, and stories that center, um, you know, uh, queer people, LGBTQ plus people, um, and aren't aren't always 
um, at the top of the bestseller list um, or the top of the Nielsen ratings. And so I feel very fortunate to be able to tell these stories. And so when I have the opportunity, um, I say yes, um, because I, I want them to get out there. And I don't know. I don't know that it'll last forever. I hope it does. But I don't know. Well, I think you're amazing. And you're also great on Twitter. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Aren't Eric? It's a very scary place sometimes. It really is. And I got to tell you, I have, I mean, I have taken, I took a, I, 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 I took a break from Twitter. I didn't like, I didn't know whether I should like put up a, like a pin thing. That's like, I'm not really on here right now. Um, I don't know. It feels very sort of like, is it, an, is it an instant messenger or away message? And, you know, is it an answer machine? What are we doing here? Um, I'm trying to disentangle myself because it's just been, you know, the last couple, well, you know, last couple of years, but like for me, the last couple of months have just been very hard on Twitter. And okay. I, um, I, I like, I just, I, what at its best, it feels like a wonderful conversation um, where we best. can Great. yeah, hang out and joke. And I think the thing is I like to, I like to joke. I like to sort of participate in pop culture Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, when it's, when the conversation gets to the place where you're like, we don't have anything to joke about. I'm like, yeah, then I got to go do something else. I got to go change the world so that we can get back to joy. I like it. I like it. And uh, again, congratulations on everything. And uh, it's, it sounds to me like you're just getting started and you've done so oh. much already. And thanks uh, for, you got to get down to Key West. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. I, well, no, my gosh, I was actually planning on coming I was going to do a writing retreat next week, um, working on a book. And I was like, oh, I should go to Key West. And everybody's like, it's a little warm, a little humid it's there this so, time of year. so gross and hot. So I'll see you in November, I think. But I have, uh, I have a friend, or not a friend, a person I follow on Instagram who has, um, you know, I think lives in Key West or Fort Myers. Um, and always, you know, it's like listing all the great places to eat and drink and whatnot. And so I'm like, I've got a list. I'm very excited. No, you'll love it. It's a, a tiny, tiny, small town with a drinking problem, but it's fine. It's doing <laughs> All right, Eric Thomas, thanks so much for giving me this time. And uh, I hope we talk soon. Margaret Killjoy, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, um, you have so much going on. You're a musician, writer, and now you have a podcast. Tell us, tell us all about this. It's true. Uh, well, it's actually my, it's a second podcast, but it's a bigger audience podcast. I, I now have a podcast with Cool Zone Media, and the podcast is called Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. And it's a podcast where I talk about rebels and revolutionaries and weird folks all throughout history and all of the cool stuff they got up to kind of with the premise that history shouldn't be boring uh i used to think history was boring when i was a kid and then i realized that history is the grandest narrative ever told it's just often told in really boring ways which is and kind of a impressive feat considering the things that people got up to in history that we find ways to talk about them as if it's like oh everyone took over the city of paris you know in the during the paris commune and entirely recreated society and if we hear about it all we hear about it with just like 
the dates and the numbers, and these are the different philosophical opinions of the people. And you're like, that's that's cool. The dates and the numbers matter, but the the narrative is what interests me. So that's that's my my new podcast. I want to that talk is about a the great narrative. point. I mean, the things that go down. I'm not a scholar by any scale, but when I do read about um, things, I'm always like, that. Wow, that's that's insane. It's hard to believe. And then, of course, the times we're living in now, I I'm not sure how it will be recorded or what the um, narrative. Uh, how I mean, how are you handling all this awfulness? That I'm I'm not. I'm in denial. Mm-hmm. I. I'm kind of, I'm into this idea of sort of a strategic optimism. You know, I I find that when you're playing, when you're playing a game, it stops being worth playing once you decide you've, you've, you've lost. Right. And it, I want to fight to win. So with all of the stuff that's going on impending climate crisis, COVID, um, the rise of, uh, people who want to control our bodies, um, and, you know, tell me that I'm not allowed to be trans and that all kinds of other things, right? All of these people are, are, are gaining some power and the, the fight is a little bit more complicated, right? Mm-hmm. But I hold on to optimism because I think it's kind of, it's the best move to hold on to optimism. It seems like despairing is a really bad plan. It's a plan that serves the people who uh, want me to not exist, you know? And so, yeah, I, um, I mean, it's just, I I just never thought things could be so toxic and negative, just mm -hmm. the way people talk uh, back and forth. And I, I don't know if you're on like Twitter, I, I I just can barely (laughs) take it. I have to be on for work, but I can't. Yeah. Now it's becoming personal attacks. If someone doesn't like you, like they look at your picture and say, I I mean, it's, are we all not, are we all just in the pit of, you know, hell right now yeah it's like everyone kind of needs therapy you know and and isn't isn't handling things at their best even even people on whatever you know whatever political side you're on the people who are on the same side as you are not necessarily behaving their best either and yeah you're right Right. well i'm not no one gets a pass from me (laughs) yeah yeah no and and that's a really good point. Um, and I, I think part of it is that because when, when really bad stuff is happening, it's really easy to lash out. It's really easy to um, find the, you know, if you can't, if you can't defeat your enemy, at least you can defeat your friend, which is like not what people should do, but it's an easy pressure release valve. And and we're all, you know, we're all people, we're all animals at the end of it, right? And so we respond to stimuli and we, we try to do our best, but sometimes we get grouchy and and lash out. And it's really just about, I don't know. I I actually, I have conversations a lot about, you know, one of my friends is a professional mediator and I'm just like, this is the skill we need. We need more people Mm -hmm. working to get people to sit down and talk with each other and and, and work through these things. I don't know. And you're so, you're so level-headed. You're not like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you're so level-headed and you're coming from a place where you know you are politically an anarchist mm-hmm. talk about something nobody a lot of people get wrong as far as yeah. what that means talk about that because you you're basically saying we don't need systems of uh, hierarchy yeah and well it's interesting because i don't think we need systems of hierarchy but I, I do think we need or benefit from systems right mm-hmm. 
you know, I think one of the main things that people get wrong about anarchism is, is this idea that it's a, a, you know, pure chaos or whatever, you know, it's the, just the stripping away of the existing system, but uh, anarchism as, as it has been politically practiced for the past couple hundred years is instead about building systems without hierarchy where we treat each other as equals, where we respect each other's autonomy. And in a lot of ways, I think it takes the things that seem appealing about communism, which is taking care of each other and sharing. And then also the things that seem appealing about non-communism, the like respect of the individual and, and things like that, you know, and, um, and, and sort of combines them. Although actually it predates either of these conceptions. So it's not actually the combining of these things. Anarchism actually predates Marxist socialism, certainly. Oh. And, but I, I, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think that we can, we can do better and we don't need people to tell us what to do. We need to collectively figure out what to do and then do it and then exert act with our own agency and, and take care of problems directly. Um, I don't know. I, I think that's actually part of how I stay optimistic is that I, I, I was never expecting someone else to come save us. I believe in our collective power to save ourselves you know, and we have not lost that even as leaders consistently fail us, we can all come forward as leaders is to me, seems like the only logical way out, whether it gets called anarchism or not, is not as important to me. I love that your books and, and other works, you, you have the greatest titles. I'm all about titles. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. A Country of Ghosts, uh, was a novella, The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion. And your your latest collection um, of stories, we won't be here tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, th these are amazing titles, but they they oh, kind of tell me what I'm getting into, right? I mean, I'm getting <laughs> into some deep, um, cool stuff yeah. that um, it, pretty fearless titles too. I mean, talk about well, talk talk about the new story collection. It's it's coming out this year, right? Yeah, it comes out September 20th from the publisher AK Press, which is actually a collective run anarchist publisher. And, uh, you know, there's there's no bosses. It's very organized, right? But they are all equals. It's a worker-owned uh, company. And uh, it is a collection of short fiction. I've been writing short fiction professionally for a number of years. And this is my first collection of it. A lot of these stories appeared in different magazines. Some of them appeared only on, I used to have a Patreon to support myself. And some of these stories only existed only previously, only patrons of mine were able to read them. And I'm just really excited to get them out in the world because I like my long books and I, I enjoy writing them, but there's something really pure and beautiful to me about the short story where it's just this expression of an idea, you know, and it's this like quick, what if, and it's funny because it's a quick, what if for the reader, but it takes me weeks and weeks, you know, of course, but as compared to a novel, which takes me, I, I guess I wrote one novel in three weeks and, but most of my books take me like a year or two, you know? And so I'm, I'm just very excited about it. And also I guess to kind of show, you know, you, you, you write these longer books and then they come out and, and people are like, Oh, Margaret writes this type of fantasy, you know, or, you know, writes horror or whatever, but I write a lot of different stuff. It's just that it takes so long to write a book that it's easier to be known just for that. And so this kind of covers a lot more of my interest in, um, harder science fiction to things that are more like 
actual fantasy set in ye olde medieval times and things, you know, and, and I get to kind of, I get to play with more ideas. It's, it's more of a playground and, and I'm excited for, for people to read it because I think people tend to read short stories more in collections than they do in magazines, more people, I believe. I do. And I used to think, oh, it's just because I have no attention span, but there's something very powerful about, like you said, it, it, I don't know. I always want to know more. I always feel mm. um, like I, they're inspiring. Toni Morrison had that new, that they found that short story, they reprinted it. And it was just, it was, I don't know. There's just something about maybe leaving people wanting more or I don't know. Yeah. But uh, you grew up on the road, but you're, you're at home right now in the, um, uh, I'm going to, is it Appalachia mountains? People get like, Appal- Appalachia, the Appalachian, Appalachian mountains. Yeah. Appalachia mountains. Yeah. Um, how did you uh, choose that uh, region to live in? So I, I grew up in the, I grew up in Maryland, not in the mountains, uh, but, but close to the mountains. The mountains were sort of the closest cool nature thing available that I would go to a lot as a kid. And so it's a, it's a bioregion that feels like home, right? I've spent a lot of time traveling and, you know, you spend time out on the West coast and it's very easy to be impressed by the beauty of the West coast because the trees are taller than buildings and, you know, everything is huge and amazing. And it took me a while to kind of except the low-key beauty of the really old mountains, because that's the reason the Appalachian Mountains are, you know, smaller, is because they're older, they're more worn down. And and I eventually just kind of realized I, I, I like that sort of slower beauty. I mean, no offense to anyone who prefers any bioregion, or whatever, I just, I really like it. It feels like home. And and also, you know, with uh, with the world getting a lot more intense, being closer to home matters to me more and more. The idea of you know, if there's suddenly a gas shortage, I can reach my family on one tank of gas. And that matters to me. And it matters to me more than when I was younger, when I was a little bit more concerned about my own sense of adventure, which I'm not mad at myself about. But but now I'm, you know, as I approach middle age or whatever, I'm, I'm much more interested in being a little bit more rooted and, and I value my family a lot. So that's why. Right. But you're yeah. in a pretty cool place. I guess you don't talk as much about yourself on this podcast, but you're in a pretty <laughs> cool bioregion too. Well, but I, I generally talk too much in conversation. So uh, it's a, no, 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 no. I just, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I got, I don't know. I'm just ADD. I drink a lot of Red Bull. I'm just, it's, uh-huh. you know, it's not good. I am sober, but yeah, not from Red Bull, but, but yeah, we live in, we're here in Key West, Florida. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I guess I just, I, I don't know. I've always ended up in places where the communities are small and people are really welcoming. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes, cliches about uh, Appalachia. I'm going to say it. That's Appalachia. Fine. Appalachia. Yeah. No, Appalachia. Appalachia. I made yeah. it Italian. A lot mm-hmm. of stereotypes about, um, you know, people make fun of a place they've never been to. Yeah. And when I think about it, I would assume there's community. And, but I mean, being, being a, a transgender woman and mm-hmm. and your political beliefs are you are you okay i mean have mm-hmm. are you safe and do you feel welcome it's 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 complicated uh i would actually say that i get harassed more in a major city than i do in a small town although that might have to do literally with just there being more people right a higher percentage of people in new york city might accept me walking down the street in a dress but even if it's a lower percentage of it, I'm still going to get harassed more in one day 
you know, walking around New York City. Um, and so it's, it's complicated. I, I think that there is something really nice in the sort of rural American attitude of which at its, not at its core, but one of its features is live and let live. One of its features is like, that's not my business, right? And it's not a very Karen environment, you know, no one, no one's, no one's calling the cops on you. And uh, which it, which I actually, I think it shares with a lot of poor communities, both urban yes. and rural share this aspect of like, well, that's not my business. So I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And, but at the same time, there is uh, a rising, you know, the, a, a worse element, a more closed-minded element of rural white America is, is what's rising right now. And it, it does feel a little bit worse. Um, but but it, it still feels, it's like, I think some places are a little bit more battleground. And I think that places that are left-wing within right-wing communities or right-wing within left-wing communities, there's a lot of tension, right? And when I lived in North Carolina, in also in Appalachia, there was a lot more tension around being trans and because there was this culture war happening and it's happening everywhere. But you know, suddenly I'm in the middle of a culture war where before people didn't care. They'd be like, well, that person's a little bit weird, but whatever. Now it's like, oh, there's the mark of the end times or whatever, you know, but where I live now, there's not as much of a culture war. Mm. And so, because partly because there's no major, I don't live near a city center. You know, I don't live somewhere where there's other people, like too many other people around. And so there's no um there's no reason to be mad at those liberals because there's no liberals around so in a weird way people are less polarized and less conservative because you haven't had this this fight happening um and maybe that's optimistic i've only been where i am for about a year but it it feels okay it it feels you know it's like it everything felt better six years ago as a trans woman uh and now we are suddenly the devil for the fact that we are out in the open, you know, I, it, and I don't know what to do about that besides continue to be myself. Sometimes I, I am closeted in certain situations because I feel safer that way. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Hard times are coming, but we will get through them. I, I, it's so great to talk with you because it's, and I love what you said to me, um, where you live sounds where I can't pronounce. I'm going to work on it. That sounds mm -hmm. amazing because it sounds like there's peace and quiet and room and room. I'm mm -hmm. from a small town and I love the live and let live. Uh, I lived in New Hampshire where God, in the nineties, I could walk down the street with my, holding my girlfriend's hand and nobody cared. Yeah. Because I mean, it wasn't an issue basically because nobody cared about anything. They're just like, do what yeah. you want, leave us. They're very cranky yeah. with their love. Yeah. And, um, but I, I am, I am very careful when I go to certain areas of the yeah. country because I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know. And I, I, I'm so spoiled here. Yeah. You can be whatever you want here. It's, it, it's la la land. I'm so lucky, mm -hmm. but I guess I just, um, when I read about, uh, when I, and my, my friends who are transgendered and I, I just don't understand it. I don't understand why people care so yeah. much in a negative, like, I don't get it. Why can't, I don't get it. It doesn't affect them. 
I yeah, I know. I, I I wonder about this too, where I'm just like, why did why did the fact that I suddenly started wearing a dress become this huge problem? I like it's no one's as as far as I'm concerned, my sexual orientation or whatever is pretty much the business of people I might be dating. Like, and I, yes. I'm public about it because I feel like I need to be right. Like, like, unfortunately you walking around holding your girlfriend's hand is like, should not be a political statement, but it is, you know? And mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's this, this annoying thing where you're like, well, being who I am is suddenly a, a big political statement. And, and that's why people get offended. Is like, well, you're pushing politics. I'm like, am I pushing politics or am I just, actually going by the name that I feel more comfortable responding to like you know and if someone doesn't get it I don't care why why should that there's all kinds of stuff that happens every day that I don't get you know like why is that person fishing off the side of the yes off the side of the bridge where it seems like the fish wouldn't be very plentiful or whatever but I'm like, <laughs> it's, it's not my business analogy it's like why because yeah. um, one thing I've always wondered, oh, my, in my experience, I'm not comparing myself to anybody. But, no, no, no. But go ahead. Um, yeah. My experience is like people just automatically, when you're queer, um, mm-hmm. the way I'm queer, they just automatically think about sex. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. that's, I can remember, you know, someone asking me years, years and years ago, but someone going, well, what do you guys do? I was like, we do what you do. We go to the grocery store. We argue. We, yeah, totally. We're about yeah. to break up, to be honest. And, but <laughs> yeah. I, I, what, I don't know if that's some puritanical American thing. Maybe it's in other countries, but I'm like, gross. I don't think about my friends like that. Yeah. They're strangers. Yeah. Could you imagine just going up to a straight couple <laughs> and being like, but is the sex even any good? <laughs> like, if you don't have the same genitals, how do you know what to do with each other? You know, or like, like, but, but no one, no one asks these questions. Yeah. The, That's my experience. People are just bugging me about, uh, not bugging me. And, and again, I'm very spoiled living in Key West and um, yeah. concerned, incredibly concerned about this type yeah. of hatred. It has a body count. I don't care what people on this yeah. Twitter, when you're, when people are doing this stuff, you're the, the Dave Chappelle thing. I'll, I'll go yeah. on the record. I, that was, it was painful. Like I was very hurt. This uh, Ricky Gervais, I, you know, never liked him anyway. When I read yeah. about the comments, it just hurt. It was like, why, what, why, picking on people that are already struggling. Yeah. Oh, now I wish I remembered the name. There's this UK comedian who then just was, you know, his bit, he's a cis man as far as I can tell. And his bit is basically like, oh yeah, that's who needs to get, you know, like that's who needs to get attacked. Those people with all that privilege, the trans community running I, around I with all that, that power. I saw that where he goes, yeah, knock you know, them down like, a peg. Like, yeah their privilege is uh there yeah uh, that helped a lot because of the humor and and yeah that people get it because i think there's more people that are loving or just don't care those are my favorite people like i like it totally i don't need people to come up and accept me like i'm like that's not you know i don't need that but but no i I, um i am just uh, i don't know maybe uh i love that you're optimistic i'm gonna be optimistic today cool because that's that's right it's a practice, you know, it's, it's just, it makes things work better. It's not even about success or not, you know, it's just about having a better time along the way, you know, um, which is terrible because I picked the name Killjoy for myself. And then I, I decided to name. become an optimist professionally. It's very confusing, but. 
but um i uh i just want to thank you for for coming on i love talking yeah. to you you're like are you the coolest person ever you know, anarchist <laughs> punk rock death metal um you write these beautiful stories and podcasting and you do it on your own terms that's Aww. i love people that are like you know what i'm just going to create my own publishing yeah. and and yeah. but it must be i mean how did you know to do that how did you know how you know it's like it's kind of like no one told me I couldn't. And, and I think about a lot of my friends who deal with like imposter syndrome and stuff. And it's because society keeps telling them they can't do it. And I got really lucky that like my dad used to self-publish a zine and, you know, in the eighties and a hundred people read it or whatever, but my dad didn't care. My dad wasn't like, Oh, how do I get my readership up? You know, he just, he was like, Oh, I want to write weird stories and publish my kids drawings and, you know, just distribute it through the mail. And so he just did that. And I, I think I kind of inherited that spirit or, or saw it happen. And so I just kind of, it didn't really occur to me that it, whether or not people like what I do, I'm just like, well, I'm just going to like do stuff and put it out and see if people like it. And, and for a decade, no one really paid too much attention to it, which is fine because I was learning how to do it, you know? And then, you know, finally in my thirties, I feel like I, I hit my stride more and so, so now it's actually interesting because I, I'm no longer completely DIY, but now when I engage with these larger, you know, my band signed to a record label, some of my books are on major publishers, uh, but not all of them. And, and I feel good because I know that at the end of the day, I can also just always self-publish and it's fine. You know, it, it reduces my ability to only make stuff for a living, right? It's easier to only make stuff for a living if you find existing large networks that can give you enough money but just yeah I don't know um I think I got lucky I think that it's a a combination of like uh, honestly in some ways privilege and then also you know because it just the not being told I couldn't the, the the I got lucky enough to not run across too many gatekeepers I didn't try to get into the fancy places if I'd shown up at the fancy places they'd be like what are you talking about and turn me away I was just like well I'm just gonna do my own thing yeah and so it's like and and punk rock right and like and there's other subcultures that do this too I think hip-hop community does this really well also but you know punk rock says like well just do it it doesn't matter if you're good just just I go out there I love and, that because and it doesn't matter what yeah Thing. And I don't even love mm-hmm. punk music, but I love punk aesthetics and culture. Yeah, me too. Like Henry Rollins. I'm not really a. He's yeah. okay. I just don't want to hear yeah. the same. It's like it's just, hardcore to me is just the same. So, yeah, like, yeah. I feel oh, bad for my friends who are in hardcore bands because I kind of like sorry don't love hardcore. Yeah, no, totally. I, I know. Me too. I want to. I want to. <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> excuse me. No, you've been so wonderful. Thank you, Margaret, for taking the time. And uh, you should come to Florida and see us. Key West, not regular Florida. No. I don't <laughs> yeah, get, gotta get through the rest of it first. I just lost all my listeners. Um, and yeah, someday I'd really like to. I'm really excited to start traveling more again. But yeah, thank you so much for having me on. listening to We're Not Finished, a podcast presented by the Studios of Key West. The Studios is a leading art institution in South Florida. It's located downtown at 533 Eaton Street. For a list of events and more programming like this, go to tskw.org.